Welcome back, everybody. We're all sixes and sevens today with Ingo Swan, Secrets of Power, Volume 1, Chapters 6 and 7. Shall we? I think we shall. Let's get to it. Chapter 6. Societal Power versus the Absence of Power Schools. Before we get into it, I have to admit, uh, the first time I came across this term, power schools, I, I thought about Charles Xavier's School for the Gifted. What are my mutant powers? We're all mutants. We all have powers. Okay. Many individuals want to discover ways and means that might lead to some kind of empowerment. I know I do. But if they have very little comprehension of the vast and enduring societal panorama of power, their empowerment efforts might end up resembling a candle undergoing meltdown until the flame extinguishes. There are two principal reasons that it can be thought of as barriers gaining empowerment. The first barrier is that power is considered extremely precious by the powerful. My precious. No! So gaining access to it is made as difficult and complicated as possible. The second barrier, simply put, there are no socially endorsed power schools in which the general public might educationally enroll in order to learn about the nature of power, its manifold elements, and its workings among the populations in general. I mean, yeah, if there was a school that said, hey, let me teach you how to understand what power is, how to cultivate it, how to use it, how to find it particularly suited for you, because it's going to be, you know, a different kind of expression when it comes from each and every one of us, which is cool. Sign me up, you know? Like life and death themselves, power can be thought of as one of the major implacable facts of human existence. Wherever humans are, or wherever they go, they transport with them the human power principle. But especially those activities and problems defined as control, authority, and influence over others. Wherever you go, there you are. How true, though, we take all of us with us no matter how far we tend to go. Societal techniques aimed at preventing widespread empowerment. In modern times, the techniques are usually referred to as social engineering. Such engineering has two faces, the visible or obvious one and the invisible or the not-so-obvious one. It's possible and logical to suppose that societal techniques to prevent too much empowerment must contain some kind of expertise that influences perception not only toward the visible aspects of power, but also away from its invisible aspects. The major societal power dynamics of the modern period do not differ all that much from earlier historical ones. While power contexts might change, the essential power structures remain the same. Nothing is new under the sun. As my dad likes to say, "'Twas ever thus." And I would like to just say, these kinds of conversations, however, have never happened in the way they are happening now. And the more we converse this way, I believe, the more we can change it for the better. So focusing on the obvious aspects tend to establish what power is in ways that are both explicit and implicit, 
which result that both adherents and detractors of societal power support or attack the visible aspects. Controlling the game from all sides. Even those among the powerless seeking some kind of empowerment conceptualize the routes to empowerment in ways that are consistent with the visible aspects. A limited and controlled spectrum of understanding of what power is and how to get it. Ingo says, it's now necessary to point out what might qualify as a top dog invisible aspect of power and societal power structures. Modern knowledge bypasses in-depth information about power. Ingo says, it's first necessary to indicate a singular and important fundamental premise supporting the idea of the modern age. The fundamental premise has to do with the objective amassing of knowledge based in organized study scientific categorizing, which is achieved against the background of the formal techniques of reasoning, i.e. the techniques of logic. Logic itself is defined as the science that studies the formal principles of reasoning. Technology is defined as applied science. Biology, the science that studies living organisms and vital processes. Botany, a science branch of biology dealing with plant life. Zoology, a scientific branch of biology concerned with the animal kingdom and its members as individuals and classes of them and with animal life. Psychology, the science that studies mind and behavior. Sociology, the science that studies society, social institutions, and social relationships. The suffix logi is taken to mean the organized study and the science of something. The modern period produced the several ologies mentioned above. I know we're bobbing and weaving here, but don't worry, keep going with me down this road. The absence of the science of powerology. Hmm. However, Ingo says, the modernist period did not establish and develop anything akin to powerology. The crucial reasons for the absence of powerology are not hard to grok. If power might be thought of as the most important thing in the world, then obtaining it would also be one of the most competitive enterprises in the world. And it is. If that's so, it must follow that how to get power must become shrouded, not only in confusions, but in secrecy, and which secrecy needs increasingly to be refined into various deeper and deeper operative levels. If that's so, then logically speaking, there must somehow exist an organized study, a science, and an applied technology regarding ways and means to defeat the arising powerology and empowerment and to eradicate whatever might somehow get it started. The Absence of Power Schools There are no societally endorsed public educational courses that might be called Power Studies 101, whose curricula would teach students how to understand and gain control, authority, and influence over others. Of course, such studies would also have to include important information that distinguishes between visible and invisible aspects of power, as well as functionable methods not only regarding empowerment, but also workable techniques regarding depowerment. There are, you know, books that come out every so often. Uh, the first one that comes to mind here is uh, Eddie Bernays's Propaganda. That's a great kind of, you know, under the guise of social engineering, but definitely a way to nudge and depower people away from their own critical thinking abilities. Indeed, and by necessity, Ingo says, the powerology curriculum would obviously include important information regarding methods of depowerment in order to ensure the continuing presence of others to have power. Mm -hmm. It can easily be established with rather convincing obviousness 
that power schools do not exist, at least the kind that are open to the public. Secret societies. If there is a monolithic societal absence of power schools, then by extension there would also have to be an absence of power studies within other meaningful socializing activities such as philosophy. The absence of philosophical power studies. How can human societies consider themselves philosophically without figuring out the central meanings and importance that power has? The three major activities of philosophy are, one, the pursuit of wisdom, two, a search for truth through logical reasoning rather than factual observation, and three, an analysis of the grounds and of concepts expressing fundamental beliefs. With regards to number one, if these activities are connected up with power and power-making, then any actual and real pursuit of wisdom has to be immediately jettisoned. Any real pursuit of wisdom will surely be inconvenient to the pursuit of power, and which pursuit is not notable for wisdom questing. In regards to the second activity, a search for truth through logical reasoning can often be in conflict with a search for power based on factual observations, for example, those of factual force, cunning, deceit, and social conditioning. And surely, the goals of power with regard to control, authority, and influence over others has to be ascertained via factual observation rather than by logical reasoning. Look around. You can see, just by observation, we are being nudged, controlled, coerced, and um, toothpaste squeegeed into certain modes of cultural behavior, thinking, acceptance, non-acceptance. Pick your team, but pick your team. It's crazy when you really look at it. The third activity... There's been no societal power structure that would relish and endorse an analysis of either the grounds or the fundamental beliefs concerning power unless such analysis proved favorable to it. So yeah, I mean, basically, if it supports the power structure and it supports the thinking that supports the power structure, then okay, we can understand and accept it. But if it breaks away or starts to chip away at the power structure, they ain't gonna support that. Understandable. Not great, but understandable. So. Philosophers, decidedly, being among the others that the powerful have control, authority, and influence over, must obtain control and authority over anything that is mind-influencing, such as philosophy. Now, I, I mean, you look, you go back, you look at Marcus Aurelius and his meditations. Those are some awesome self-empowering writings. But it's also not the easiest thing to, shall we say, grok. You really got to get in there and read it. And there are lots of amazing YouTube videos. Really, we're in a different time now where this kind of discussion has started to churn out. What we're doing here is laying a nice base foundation of realization and uh, perception expansion to accept that we have much more within us than our current power structure would like us to believe. From this wonderful launching pad, I believe we as individuals and as a human species can reach amazing new heights, truly a Renaissance 2.0. We got to start somewhere. And we, I, I think it is imperative to start in the strongest place possible here, understanding we are full, dripping with power. Back to philosophy. So it's thus that philosophy, Ingo says, is in serious concern to power structures. Smart philosophers have long understood that frank philosophical discussions of power as such are not only taboo, but can be dangerous. Wasn't it Socrates who died for his beliefs when he was speaking out too much? What was it, Hemlock? He was making too many waves. Ah, and here is a modern example of modern philosophers going to be like, I don't want to know, you know, let's shh, 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 not too much. In 1967, the Encyclopedia of Philosophy, 
altogether amounting to just over 2,120 oversized pages. If any of you there remember the actual Encyclopedia Britannica, we had one. Wow, it was cool. A lot of information. Really, really, I mean, just the pre-internet age of, okay, let's look it up. Ingo says, the topic of power in these oversized pages could not be avoided altogether, so the entry for it consisted of only two and a half pages. Ugh. And he's got the quote here, which uh, summarizes from the Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Quote, to possess power or to be powerful is, then, to have a generalized potentiality for getting one's own way, or for bringing about changes, at least some of which are intended, in other people's actions. Unquote. Ingo says, well, what has been quoted above surely reflects what the powerful wish to be openly known and accepted about power, and the compilers of the encyclopedia did their duty. The societal fate of power studies, powerology, and power psychology. If from the perspective of invested power structures there are to be no power schools, then it generally must follow that there is to be no knowledge of power either at least of the kind made openly available to the powerless who might empower themselves. They are required to be socially conditioned to conform within the design and needs of this or that power structure. But any significant empowerment activities that somehow get going must be swiftly deconstructed. There are many horror stories with the deconstruction of such faded empowerment efforts, but one of those efforts is quite significant, precisely because it directly involved making the powerless more powerful. Early in the 20th century, various efforts grouped together as power psychology got going in Europe. One of the chief exponents was Alfred Adler, 1870-1937, who founded the school of individual psychology. Adler was among the first to reject the Freudian emphasis upon sex. He maintained that all personality difficulties had their roots in feelings of inferiority or powerlessness. Derived from physical, intellectual, or from conflict with the natural and social environment that restricts an individual's need for power and self-assertion. I think self-assertion is really important there. How, much of, how, how many times have we felt in our day-to-day the difficulty of asserting our self? Whether it is walking down the street and you got somebody who is just refusing to get out of your way, and I don't mean like they're in your way. I mean, you know, you walk in, it's like, oh, excuse me, pardon me. It's, oh, no, I'm walking it's my space now. What? Get out of the way. Not being able to say your piece for whatever kind of fear of rejection or ostracization. Ostracization? Ost- you know what I mean. Ostracization. Being ostracized from society for having a belief that is dissenting from whatever popular opinion is now taking charge of the Twitters. Self-assertion is, I think, very important. Not in a way to assert over others, but in a way to simply assert the self. I could go off on a tangent for quite some time. Anyway, in Adler's terms, Ingo says, feelings of inferiority diminished power, where the opposites of feelings of superiority enhanced power. Adler thus saw behavior disorders as overcompensation for power deficiencies and socio-environmental depowerment. Oof, I mean, that, that strikes a chord within me. I can see a lot of that. And it gives not legitimacy to movements that are going on now, but legitimacy to the kernel in feeling of depowerment, where certain individuals identifying with certain groups, 
which have historically been marginalized one way or the other, are now behaving in a way that is, as he has said here, overcompensating for power deficiencies, some real, some perceived, uh, in our environment. The United States is, uh, in theory, a wonderful place because it is, in theory, a free place where you can represent yourself, self-assert yourself in a way before, historically, you never really could. In practice, <laughs> right now at least, that's definitely come under some serious contention. Again, with these kinds of conversations, focusing on self-assertion and not overcompensation over others' perspectives to assert over others is the direction, I think, where we need to go, where we need to kind of turn the ship away from where we're going right now. Because where we're going right now is, you're either with us or you're against us. And it's been like that for quite some time. I remember in the early aughts, you had uh, George W., you're either with us or you're against us. And that was wrong. <laughs> so much about that was wrong. But there's so much about what's going on now, which is criminals are right. Law enforcement is wrong. And if you disagree with us, you're wrong. And I would be the first to say that this conversation that is presented to us is absolutely uh, orchestrated, organized, and meant to have us pick our teams and fight amongst each other. That is definitely controlled. And certainly not primarily a form of self-assertion. If you need a team to self-assert, it's not necessarily the self that you're asserting anymore, is it? It doesn't mean you can't agree with other people, but it does mean that to subsume oneself in a group over your individual POV, at least from what I'm experiencing, what I've experienced my entire life, doesn't seem to really solve or help alleviate the stressors that we are experiencing within society today. The more we can accept each other as individuals, legitimate, awesome individuals for our own individual reasons, I think the better society will be as a whole. I know, I know, it's a lot. I know, I know. Moving on. So this dude, Adler, and I've been listening to his book on human nature, I believe it's called. Really, really, boy, I mean, with the first 30 minutes, the guy's like, yo, check it out. This, your psychic life is shaped when you're a child. It's incredibly difficult for you to get away from that throughout the rest of your life. And there's a lot of hard work, both for the individual and the individual wanting to help the individual once the individual seeks help, that goes into unraveling and reweaving the psychic structure within oneself that will be beneficial not only for the individual, but for society as a whole, because it'd be a better operating individual. Okay, here we go. Ingo says that Adler founded the School for Individual Psychology to treat and cure individuals suffering from this inferiority complex, thereby restoring them to their natural powers of self-assertion. Adler's school of power psychology got off to a brilliant start. This kind of thing, of course, constitutes something akin to a nightmare among stalwart managers of power structures. What? You're asserting yourself? Oh, shit! <laughs> the reaction of those power structures, when it came to Adler's goal of re-empowering the depowered, required subtle deconstruction efforts that would achieve two effects. And take note of these, because when you see these in action, and I see them often, I say, uh, you know, rabbit ears perking up, solid snake, brrr. Pay attention, because this means it's a threat to some power structure or other out there is trying to suppress something when they go about deconstructing a certain voice 
perspective, representation of an issue uh, like this. So, making Adler, making them seem foolish in the eyes of his professional peer group, making him seem foolish in the eyes of his peers, while at the same time tacitly warning the group against pursuing power studies or this or that perspective, this or that modality of thought, behavior, etc., which might lead toward empowerment techniques. Anytime there is a silencing or a suppression of a particular perspective instead of a free and open debate on issues concerning that perspective against another perspective, you can know something's up on the show Wednesday Ultra, which I uh, have been lucky enough to frequent, and I hope to do so again soon. I believe it was Mark from My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, also a wonderful podcast. Check it out. The man is a machine. He pumps out such incredible content. Uh, he had said that his grandfather had told him very early on, the moment somebody is trying to make somebody else quiet, you know that's the bad guy. And that's a very simplified version of what we have here. Anytime it's a silencing over an open debate, time to pay attention and recognize that someone is trying to protect some form of power and power structure. So back to Adler. Adler might have understood inferiority complexes quite well, but he clearly did not understand the machinations of power structures because they went out and got him. So to make things work for him, in 1927, he produced a seminal book entitled Understanding Human Nature. Ah, that's the one. That's the one I'm listening to right now. Solid. Human nature has long been thought of as containing the famous or infamous power drive, elements of which presumably dwelled in everyone just as human nature did. Thus, in his book, Adler posited that the urge to power was a constituent of human nature itself. It's part of our core being. As such, power should be dissected to be better understood and managed. Such an effort, if it ever got underway, could have serious implications to any number of power structures. Well, that's what we're doing here. Beware, power structures. Beware. Indeed, discovering how to understand and manage power in an organized and presumably scientific fashion threatened to bring the rules and methods of power into fuller disclosure, something few really wanted because it might give undue advantage to just anyone. As a result, both the workings of human nature and the pursuit of power psychology disappeared as such. Even so, and if a little dated by now, Adler's books are well worth reading by anyone grappling with the problems of empowerment. Second, also very interesting, 1927, in the early 1900s, late 1800s, just before and just after the First World War, uh, Rudolf Steiner too was among many who began talking about these certain issues. His book, The Philosophy of Freedom, also amazing, talks about this kind of stuff, self-empowerment, delving deep into the individual to discover what is limiting ourselves and how better to think about our situations in order to free ourselves from ourselves so that we can live more in our self-empowerment. We've got to keep talking about it. We've got to keep our eyes on the prize, and that prize is our ideal selves through expanded understanding and knowledge of what we truly are, which is infinite. But you got to start somewhere. Why not start with power? Okay, items for investigation. Try to locate a power school open to the public that is endorsed and funded by a mainstream power structure. I have yet to find one. <laughs> really. So, hey, I would love it if anybody had any suggestions or ideas. Point me there. Funded by 
a mainstream power structure. I think that's the caveat there. Because there are, you know, there are certain places that you can go to that might aid in self-empowerment, but they are not funded by anything mainstream. At least as far as I have seen, again, I welcome anybody breaking down their thoughts on that particular item for investigation. That wraps up chapter six. Short break, and then chapter seven. Chapter 7. The Web of Secrets Preventing Access to Empowerment Ingo kicks off Chapter 7 by saying the 11 most obvious definitions of secrecy were discussed in Chapter 5. Via those definitions, the term secrecy represents the ways and means of hiding things from others. But in a larger picture, it seems that secrecy is not only a process of hiding things, but an aspect of collective human nature overall. By way of explanation, if we can think that the urge to power is a species-wide aspect of human nature, then it is possible that the urge to secrecy is quite close to the power urge. Almost anyone can discover that power and secrecy are always found together or working in tandem. Sure, as soon as you discover a shortcut, a cheat code, a hack, especially if you're in any kind of zone of competition, you're not going to want to share that. That's yours. That's valued information. I can understand what he just said right there. It is important, Ingo goes on, to point up this factual relationship because conventional books never introduce the aspect of secrecy as part and parcel of power games. The concept of a web. Taken from the Old Norse into English, the term web refers to weaving something so as to snare, entrap, or entangle. Three of the major definitions of tangle are given as one, to unite or knit together in intricate confusion. Two, a complicated or confused state or condition. Three, a state of perplexity or complete bewilderment. It is logical to think that if all of the elements of power and empowerment stood revealed to everyone, it would then be difficult to form out a power structure of any kind because everyone would be more or less equivalent. The obvious reason, as already discussed, is that power as control, authority, and influence over others requires presence of those others who must be maintained in some unequivalent condition of depowerment. If it ain't self-empowerment, you're going to need those others to power over. So, the elements of power and empowerment cannot stand revealed to everyone. They must be broadly cast into a complicated or confused condition. And how many of us feel just a little confused about the world today? I know I do. The close linkage of secrecy and power. The reason for the close linkage of power and secrecy can now be seen as obvious and that there is no supportable reason for secrecy unless it is used to deny information to others for the empowering benefits of those who instigate the denial. Yeah, I mean, way back when, look at the church. Like, I, I mean, I think I said this in another episode, they reserved the ability to read for just the monks and, and, and the priest's class. They weren't teaching people how to read. Everything was kept in Latin. 
you know, thank you, uh, 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 Gutenberg, for real. Power over others can, of course, be achieved by brute force, but there is no secret about that method. Give me your lunch money. But power over others is also achieved by preventing the others from acquiring real information and knowledge about empowerment. If this is successful, others end up as dysfunctional and bewildered. Oh, that web definition. With respect to gaining empowering access to you know, just about anything. To aid in beginning to sort through all of this, two principal kinds of uses of secrecy can be defined. Most are familiar with the fact that power structures utilize secrecy to gain or obtain advantages with respect to other power structures. Look at the military, look at uh, economics, ideological power structures. You, know, you got Wall Street, you got the government, you got the church, you got the media. Certain ideological... Per I mean, it's nuts these days. There are certainly frothing power structures vying for control of our minds every which way. It's tiring. It's tiring. But there is another principle used for secrecy, and it is one shared in common by almost all power structures. In terms of its total population, a power structure is roughly composed of a small cadre of the powerful and a very large cadre over which the small cadre exert control, authority, and influence. That large cadre is also called the masses. Without the presence of the incorporated masses, the powerful would not have much to have power over. We've said this time and time again. But it's important to remember. And, uh, you know, cultural note here, side note, I watched episode 9 of uh, House of the Dragon, and the white worm made a very specific request to an individual. No spoilers here, but she did say to that individual, please remember the power which you have over us is really only because of the power which the people are willfully giving to you. And if we can all be cognizant of that fact, we can all be aware of that, not as some form of collective, but as individuals, each and every one of us making up this tapestry that is human society, then that power structure that we are existing in, that we're feeling the strain of, I would argue now more than ever in my modern life, then perhaps it will help us and help them recognize that uh, it's time to right the ship a little bit. Ingo goes on, this is uh, quite a dynamic relationship, and many sociologists have examined this dynamic relationship, but only within the context of the belief that the powerless are naturally powerless which is, in my opinion, naturally screwed up. Though it makes sense because, hey, who's funding those sociologists to make their studies anyway? <laughs> Ingo says there is a useful analogy via which the powerful can be pictured as the head and the powerless as the body. If the powerless suddenly abandon the head, then the head has nothing to be the head of. I'm getting images of Frankenstein right now, but even still, if the body recognizes that there's a better way to run, and I think that's coming, with uh, emerging technology and the stressors of everyday life, I think we are rapidly, all of us on some level, all looking for a better way to do things here. And it's coming. I think we're getting closer to it every day. And the more we're aware of it, the better we'll be prepared to move this body in the direction that we want to go in. Depriving the masses of power knowledge. Ingo says there's this dual situation of power rulership that's throughout history having to do with the powerless masses. One, the powerless masses must be kept content 
and non-combative with regard to the powerful, but in a mental state within which they are acceptive of the powerful. Bread, circuses, music and dance-off shows, we got football, we got basketball, baseball. Pick your teams. Fight amongst yourselves. Don't look up here at who's actually flipping the switches. And two, at the same time, the masses must also be deprived of all knowledge that has any relevance regarding how to become powerful. Ingo goes on, This dual situation is a problem because all individuals of our species are born with a mind that can organize information and figure things out. All individuals are innately born with a large number of awareness and intelligence faculties. We all got it in us. In modern times, the masses within a given power structure must be made to undergo, and here we go, social conditioning, so as to become subservient to and accepting of the powerful. Social conditioning, behavior modification, and mind control are at least depowerment siblings, having many similar aspects and results. They call it programming, that TV. Social conditioning can, of course, be imposed by abject and overt force. We saw that recently with uh, certain aspects of telling people to put certain things in their body and in Canada by forcefully shutting out people from their bank accounts. Most recently with Yi being shut out of his bank account. But this kind of conditioning usually leaves a residue of resentment. <laughs> yeah, desires for revenge and ultimately rebellion. It can cause quakes within a power structure and even pull down the powerful, who then are quite likely to be subjected to abject force, such as assassination, beheading, so forth. The use of overt force has not proven very workable in the long run. This leaves the option of achieving social conditioning via hidden and secret techniques so as to prevent and inhibit the conditioned form of recognizing it for what it is. This type of activity becomes noticeable by examining the not-so-obvious anatomy of the powerless. The Major Structure of Depowerment Ingo says, Depowerment processes can more factually account for the origins of perceived powerlessness, and thus feelings of inferiority. Uh, do you feel depowered today? Take a pill. Alfred Adler, once again, very cool dude, cleanly put one figure on the machinations of depowerment, a principal source of feelings of inferiority, and thus of feelings of powerlessness, were to be found not exclusively within the individual. The more likely source has to do with societal environments that deconditioned empowerment, not only among the masses, but even within given power structures as a whole. It's baked into the system. The best kinds of depowerment processes. We might assume, Ingo says, that most individuals incorporated into a power structure would not want to undergo conditioning toward depowerment and would probably fight against it if the conditioning became easily identifiable. I know I did, all through school. <laughs> Therefore, in order to achieve even a modicum of efficiency, the processes of such conditioning clearly require formats of secrecy that are not easily recognized as such, or even recognized as existing in the first place. Depowerment processes must not only be secret and subtle, but invisible as well. After all, most will not think to discover and recognize what is apparently not there to recognize. The absence of encyclopedias regarding the scope of human powers and abilities. And this I'll just shorten by saying, you know, by and large, still, we're not seeing a lot of information out there 
However, Adler's works, you got Wilhelm Reich's works, 48 Laws of Power, you know, to a certain degree. There are books out there that are empowering that will lead one to more information about how to self-empower. I'm a fan of NLP and hypnosis to kind of reweave the structures of the mind into a more efficient, uh, more optimal state. Not efficient, but more optimal state for us to stand within. Ingo does say, extensive encyclopedias of psychiatric and psychological disorder have also been produced, but no encyclopedias of human powers and abilities have seen the light of day. And do you guys remember those old, I think they were DK books of like gems and plant life and all the animals, like those big fat picture encyclopedias? What would it be like if we had one of those for all of the different kinds of powers that humans express? From athletic to intellectual to spiritual and beyond. I mean, throughout history, whether it's summoning spirits or leaping and running at incredible rates, when it comes to being chess masters, uh, strategical virtuosos like uh, Sun Tzu, Machiavelli, not good, not bad, but boy, oh boy, are they exquisitely refined expressions of power. And you can go a little quirky, like, you know, curling. Curling is bizarre. But boy, is it interesting to watch when they're good. Pickleball. Pickleball's just really, it's riveting. Golf. Crazy. Swinging a club. Robin Williams has a great bit on golf. Amazing. All of this stuff. UFC fighting. The list goes on and on. I want a DK book about power. Okay. The absence of studies regarding the nature and scope of human awareness. Ingo states the nature of awareness and its full scope must constitute a key factor not only in respect to empowerment potentials, but also as a factor for basic survival. Indeed, those of minimal or deconditioned awareness, I'll say it again, those of minimal or deconditioned awareness are likely to become easy victims of just about any agenda or insidious activity. That is the number one and only thing I want to help alleviate. I would love to recondition expanded awareness. I think that's what we're doing here. That's what we're doing here. (laughs) Expanding one's awareness potential certainly plays a crucial role with regard to empowerment and to power. One has to become aware of something in order to even begin dealing with it. But there are no studies regarding awareness, much less studies regarding how to expand It's fabulous spectrum. And I did make a note here. The uh, training I received for acting absolutely expanded the hell out of my awareness. It has absolutely helped me see the world in a way that has led me to this moment in time, sharing this here with you. Uh, I, I think that there is great value in taking some of the training that I received as an actor and just applying it to being a human. It has helped me understand others' perspectives, and that expanded awareness helps me understand this information and other information better. I could go on. I mean, you know, certainly considering taking some of those gems I got in school and throughout uh, professional acting life uh, and making a little course. We'll see. I'll talk about it more. The absence of studies regarding intuition, telepathy, and foresight. And yes, I agree, the attributes of intuition, Ingo says, telepathy and foresight are so visible among our species and in all cultures. 
from the seers of dreams to John Dee and his structuring of the British Empire with Elizabeth to, uh, I think it was Warren Buffett who said, millionaires don't believe in astrology, billionaires do. I mean, this is out, it's out there. It's out there. So much so that most, at least, tacitly accept without question their real existence. Who hasn't thought of a friend and then gotten a text or a call? It's true that many books about these elements have appeared, sure. Lots of books out there talk about how to be psychic, but extensive and efficient studies of them have never been officially sponsored by any invested societal power structure. Now, they have been invested in uh, by governmental power structures, and they've kept on the hush-hush for quite some time. Penetration, great book. Ingo talks about it. Ingo himself was hired by the CIA to oh, run the Project Stargate program. I mean, he trained remote viewers how to remote view, and those remote viewers have subsequently made uh, myriad training programs on how to train up yourself. But the kernel is, is quite simple. I go into it in, his, uh, in the review of his book, uh, Everybody's Guide to ESP, to break it down very quickly. Put yourself in a relaxed state. Reach out with your mind's eye toward the thing in which you want to envisage, whether it's a place, a moment in time. Relax and allow the information to bubble up from you. And it's not going to be 100% super clear. It's a muscle. It's a pathway that needs walking over and over again to become more defined. But the more you relax and intently reach out, you will receive. In one form or another, I can guarantee that. And there are, I just checked, several other apps than the one that I use, which is ESP Trainer. It says Casino underneath it. I don't know why it does that. I guess it would help in the casino. But uh, there are many apps, it looks like, that can help awaken your natural communication to your intuitive muscles to start to strengthen that experience. I, I mean, it's great. I recommend it. Quiet down right before you go to sleep and then do a little session. Don't push yourself. Relax. Do a little session. And over time, you will get better because you'll start to become familiar with yourself. Just like walking, it was first unfamiliar. And we sucked at it, and it was hilarious. But after a little while, because the body is built to walk, the body and mind system is built to receive this information as well. So anyway, Ingo says, The obvious reason concerns the real possibility that real knowledge and development suggestive of applied technology could come about. Weaponized remote viewing, psychokinesis, psychic wars, and the full magnification of those three attributes intuition, telepathy, and foresight, would have significant but decidedly nightmarish implications regarding empowerment and invasions of secrecy webs. He talks about this a little bit. If everybody actually, even just a little bit, significantly raised their ability to experience their own intuition and accept that we all have foresight abilities that will develop and manifest in one way or another differently in each and every one of us. But if we all did that, society's secret structures would probably crumble to a significant degree just because there would be far fewer secrets among each other. Truths would be much more commonplace rather than taboo, simply because of the power structure putting in place what is okay and what is not okay. Flex those muscles, everybody. There's a better future on the other end. Perpetuating a state of unknowing regarding empowerment. When the majority of people are kept in a state of unknowing, 
They are easier to influence, control, and dominate by the managers of power structure systems. The best way of defeating empowerment among the masses is to keep absent any knowledge that has real implications toward empowerment. And almost anything along those lines can be rendered invisible, or at least cast into confusion. The whole of this process can be referred to as the web of secrets preventing access to empowerment. Those who aspire to some kind of empowerment might take more than just a passing interest in this deadly web and its secrets, and perhaps how to unravel it. The Long History of Depowerment by Societal Design The societal prohibition against real and workable power knowledge is so long sustained, so logical to power holders, that it need not even be put into print as a directive. It's practically intuitive among power holders. It's unspoken, it's silent, and it's well-maintained. The best way to accomplish this negative power engineering in the long term, i.e. cliff notes for power holders, is one, to permanently hide all effective knowledge concerning empowerment. Two, to permit, even encourage, the production of disinformation about empowerment, which won't result in empowerment. And three, to make the issues of depowerment so completely invisible that the term itself is not linguistically present and is not therefore to be found in dictionaries. These three items, more or less, characterize the web of secrets that efficiently prevent access to empowerment. Items to contemplate and verify. No power schools, no encyclopedias of human power and abilities, no studies regarding the nature of awareness, no productive studies regarding intuition, telepathy, and foresight. What a wacky wild road we're all walking down. I'm happy to walk it here with you for however long we walk. This is good. This is good. More awareness. Strengthening our psychic powers. Ingo Swan breaking it down. Look around now in your day-to-day -day life. Hold these ideas in your mind as you do. Maybe you see the world a little bit differently. Maybe your awareness expands. And as it expands, more opportunities, more options, more modes of thinking that are better for you, for me, for us all, begin to bubble up. And in that bubbling, we change a placid cup of milk into a fantastic bubble party. Who didn't do that with their chocolate milk? I, I did. I did. Okay. Well, that's chapter six and seven. We'll be hitting eight and nine here shortly. Thank you all for joining me on this. We're getting into it now. We're getting into it. I look forward to the next one. And thanks for hanging. More power to you.